Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA that we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. With 51 years sober in AA, today's guest, John C., shares a story chock full of experience that will resonate with newcomers, old-timers, and everyone in between. Growing up in Ontario, Canada, John's childhood and adolescence were influenced by his overbearing alcoholic father and pill-addicted mother. Staying out of the house, away from his parents, for days at a time, was one of the few ways he could cope with the madness at home. Indelibly imprinted on John's psyche was the belief that he was a failure and would not amount to anything. By the time he was kicked out of high school, his drinking had commenced and affected every aspect of his life. Touched by the characters and story in the movie Days of Wine and Roses, John's identification with the film's depiction of alcoholism planted a seed that took root in his early attempt at AA in his early 20s. He managed to stay sober for about a year before he relapsed for 14 months. A thorough beating inflicted by the disease brought John back into AA in 1972, when his commitment to the program was set for the next half century. His focus on AA principles has served him well over these many years, and he is always looking for new opportunities to help others, both in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe you'll find John's story to be captivating, instructive, and inspiring. So please enjoy the next hour and 15 minutes with my friend and AA brother, John C. I'm an alcoholic, and I belong to a Gap-A group, and my name is John. Hi, John. That, I, I do appreciate you, uh, you doing this interview with me today on AA Recovery Interviews. As a matter of fact, it was suggested to me that I ask you to participate by a man who I interviewed recently, Patrick, in New York City. Uh-huh. And uh, he told me that he had hear, heard you share and speak a number of times. Uh-huh. So you're not in uh, you're not in the U.S. You're in Canada. That's right, uh, Howard. I'm in uh, Ontario, the province of Ontario, and I'm near Toronto, about oh, a half hour away from Toronto. Okay, yeah, I love Toronto. It's a beautiful city. It is. How long have you been sober now? Uh, this month is 51 years. 51 years. So, what's your sobriety date? November or December 23rd. Okay, so you're coming up on 51 years. That's right, 1972. Uh, that's Congratulations on that. There are not many people around who can claim that kind of longevity in uh, sobriety or in the program. You know, I've always been curious, what was AA in Ontario like back in 1973, 72? You know, I, I ponder that question and see what the differences are. And I'm going to tell you some of the observations that I made within my group, so my circle of influence. Mm-hmm. First first thing was that there wasn't a lot of conversation around doing the steps. Really? <laughs> there, was, there was no step study. There was uh, no book study, big book study. There was none of that. It was mm-hmm. almost always speaker meetings. Mm-hmm. And uh, what those men taught me Mm-hmm. Uh, was service. They just kept pounding and going, helping somebody else. 
I really don't know the, the the first men that I met in my group, what step they were working on. They never talked about it very much. Uh, they pointed sometimes to step four, but that was seldom. It was all about uh, belonging to a group, being active in the group, and uh, reaching out to people who, you know, wanted to uh, at least have a conversation about being in recovery. That sounds like a big difference between uh, then and now. Oh, my God, it's miles. Because, you know, for me, I don't mean to sound critical or anything, but for me, it's gone overboard the other way where there's nothing but study. But, you know, I wonder how often uh, uh, if you were in a a college course, right? If you actually uh took a college course and you took four years to do 164 pages. (laughs) So, you know what, Uh, Howard? There's just too much of that. I think we need to... uh, uh, get back to the basics kind of thing. And uh, studying is good. I don't mean to say that isn't good. It is good. Well, it's probably more a product of the times, though, because if the meetings that you were going to back in the early 70s were predominantly speaker meetings yes. and there wasn't a lot of study, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, discussion meetings and that sort of thing, I can imagine that as being a, a really big, big difference. You're in Ontario, so yeah. did... AA catch on in Ontario as quickly as it did uh, in Akron and Ohio? Because those two cities are not all that far apart. No, they're not. But we're about four hours, five hours from to Akron. Uh-huh. In Toronto, it was the first place it took place. And, and, it, and people in the Hamilton here, where I, where I grew up, and uh, they were putting you know, things in newspapers because uh, hmm. that let people know the whole thing was so anonymous, nobody knew where to find it. <laughs> so so I, I gathered by that uh, that it was a slow kind of growing. And then with, you know, increased communication and so on over over the many years, it's, it's growing much more rapidly than it had been in the early days. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, um, from your countenance, I would have to guess that you must have gotten sober at 51, 50, coming on 51 years. You must have gotten sober at what, 18? Am I? Uh, well, thank you for 18, saying that. 18, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was 25 when I, and I quit. So I'm 76 years old now. So what was going on in your life 50 years ago that made you seek out Alcoholics Anonymous of all things? Well, I like to say it was some courage, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was truly a baptism of fire, you know what I mean, Howard? It was that precious moment that some of us, uh, many, many of us in the, in the membership of AA, mm-hmm. had some insight uh, to look at oneself and say, you know what, I'm just sick of being this way. I'm just tired of being this way. I'm just... It was a degree of honesty, what I what I would call grace, that uh, mm-hmm. allowed me to look into my eyes and see, you know what, I need to do something about it. Now, interesting, I think it's interesting anyway, what prompted me for phoning AA was the great movie, Days of Wine and Roses. The combination of that movie, which hit my heart, and I yeah. always think, you know, Howard, this is what I believe. I, I believe the spirit within me was touched when I saw that movie because somehow or another I related to the drunk. I, I, even at the age of 22, when I first come to the program, was I was 22 years old when I went back out after six months of sobriety. And I come back in when I was 25. There was something very magical about that moment 
it's hard to explain, really. I don't know if I can explain it adequately. I came in September of the year Bill Wilson died, 1971. Okay, but your first exposure to AA was earlier than that. It was. So it was. Now, when you went to AA for the first time, yeah. what, what had been going on in your life that led you to that first meeting, even before you ended up getting sober to your current sobriety date? You know, it was just this disruption. It was just the, the upset. You know, the angst of living the way I was living, the disappointment, getting lost for a few days. My parents didn't even know where I was. Mm-hmm. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed of myself. Uh, uh, and I come to realize, although reluctantly, that I had better do something about it or I'm going to turn out like my father, which I detested the thought of. Uh, not that he was a bad man, Howard. He was not, but he was a drunk, uh, like I was. Yeah. Uh-huh. As I say, I just came to the realization I just didn't want that life. And I came to a point, Howard, that was like this. I had to drink, and I had to stop. And it was just like cycle of, of out-of-control kinds of things that I was doing, the car accidents, the fist fights, the not showing up for work, the, all of those things, the the dissatisfaction, this almost like self-hatred, I would call it. Hmm. Uh, when Dr. Silkworth talks about, in the doctor's opinion, about restless, irritable, and discontent, I, I still can remember feeling that and those feelings, by the way. And I consider them today to be umbrella words. In other words, I, I was trying to control things that I couldn't control, which raised my restlessness and irritability and discontent. And at yeah. some point, it was like a boiling point, right? It, it was it was uh, unacceptable for me to continue. So how, how early were the fires lit to get you to that boiling point in your early 20s? Well, I started drinking when I was both 18 years old. I started drinking at 18. A lot of people get start drinking 14, 15. But there's a number of years before that that a lot is going on that lead us to that first drink or behavior. So what was your childhood like in your family of origin? It was, I'm a child of an alcoholic and all the eggshells and the sterility of, a, of an environment, uh, wondering when he's coming home and what's he going to say. And I'm trying to avoid him because he would keep me up to all hours of the night lecturing me. And it was, it was a horrible experience. Mm-hmm. And, I would, and I would stay out of the house for a long period of time. But I got I got to go back to the sequencing of what Doctor Silkworth said. Before I picked mm-hmm. up a drink, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. I wasn't confident enough to to deal with life uh, life's turns, and uh, yeah. and that frust- that was very frustrating for me. And and I, I, I and of course what we do is we seek solace, and comfort, and ease. In the, at least I did in, in the addiction to relieve myself of that. Uh, of that feeling. Do you have siblings, and did you ex- experience that abuse when you were a kid? Yeah, uh, I have two sisters, but the, the, what happened was my next youngest sister to uh, to me mm-hmm. was 10 years older than I was. The oldest sister was 12 years older. They had much grown up before my father took on this alcoholic uh, behavior. So he wasn't drinking that way when they were growing up? No, no. But he... he He'd be drinking, but it wasn't to the extent that, that I saw growing up. Uh-huh. And uh, he, <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is because he used to sit down and tell me in his rage that I was the result of a weekend leave and a bottle of rum. <laughs> oh, no. 
Well, I bet that made you feel special, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, my gosh. So, the, you know, the, the demand that my father commanded in the house, he didn't hit me that I can recall, but he sure embarrassed me many, many different times. I heard a speaker this summer which really struck me. He was an Elamon speaker, actually. He was talking about his dad who was drinking, and uh, it, it, somehow or another he was inside his house, and his father was outside showing his ass uh, to the world. In other words, he'd be in defiant, and he wants to fight, and he just, and this guy said, here I am in the house not willing to show my face to the world, and I'm watching my dad showing his ass. That struck me. Uh, because that's exactly the way I felt. That's the way you felt. It's, yeah, yeah. I was ashamed uh, that uh, the way he was. Yeah. I, I avoided him at all costs. And uh, did was was your mother on the scene to intercede? No, my mother ended up becoming an addict, addicted as well with uh, more pills than alcohol, but alcohol played a major part. Of it. Okay, so between the two parents, there was alcoholism. There was. Uh, there was drug addiction. A lot of times there are all these co-occurring disorders that, that are going on. That must have been really tough then. You, you, before you found alcohol, how did you deal with that? One way I dealt with was staying out of the house as much as I possibly could. Was that okay for you to do or did they want you home? You know, if I would have asked them, do you want me home or can I go out? They would probably say, I want you home. Yeah. But uh, but it didn't work out that way. They were so preoccupied with their addiction. I, I I was on the streets quite early in my life and mm. uh, not coming home to three or four in the morning on purpose because I didn't want to sit with my, my, my father in the kitchen mm. with the lights out listening to him babble on about something. And it, it was a horrible, horrible growing up. And I don't want to blame my parents for this because no. they just did what they thought they could do. And uh, I recognize that and I have recognized that for a long period of time. But I often wonder, the fork in the road that each of us take, mm -hmm. what, what is said, what experience that had me go to left or right? And mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say to you is that, that somewhere along the line, I, I started really rebel in school. And you weren't drinking yet at that point? Oh, no, I wasn't drinking. No, no. And I wasn't even taking marijuana or anything like that either. At this age, I'm just referring to. But I, somewhere, I decided that I was worthless. I was stupid. And and I behaved in school that way. And I look back at that young boy thinking that, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, how did you arrive at that decision to think that you were that way? And I acted out. I acted out in school. And, uh, I was went to a Catholic school and mm -hmm. uh, wanted to do well. Uh, matter of fact, when I, I wrote one of my books, I was talking about this idea of my, my faith as a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to do well. I wanted to be good. And, uh, I wanted to love God. And the things that were important to me at the time all got lost. It just got all lost with a distraction of of fear, anxiety, upset, unpredictability in the household. So acting out in a Catholic school really didn't mix very well, did it? <laughs> Not from what I know about it. <laughs> well... <laughs> The principal was a was a priest in high school, uh -huh. and he he sent he brought me down to the office, and he informed me that there's only one principal uh, that's being paid in the school. It was him and not me. Oh, brother! 
and he thinks he thought I should leave, which I did. So he they kicked you out essentially. Yeah, a couple of times. How did that go over at home? Well, I don't remember. It was such a big deal. Mm. Uh, I, I had to get a job, and I went and got a factory job and, uh, with my dad, who worked in the in the factory, and uh, I went to work in, with that, and that was okay. Here's a couple of it's a couple of interesting things. Uh-huh. I want to I want to move ahead forty years or so. And the priest that was the principal who was now a pastor at a church I was attending. Mm-hmm. And at their mass, I went up to him, and I said to him, you may not remember me. And he says, oh, I remember you. And I went on to, I don't think he really did remember me, but he was just being kind. <laughs> yeah. And I said to him, I said, you know, and I told him about that meeting we had. And he said to me, I hope he didn't take my advice. That touched my heart, too, uh, Howard, how I got mixed up and thinking the wrong things about someone that was trying to help me, and yet somehow or another I interpreted as a threat. Hmm. You know, I was looking back at that whole experience, I I wished I would have stayed in school, I wish I would have participated in school, I wish I would have been... Well, it sounds like he had some kind of self-reckoning himself in that 40 years and realized perhaps that had he handled things differently, your life could have been much, much different. Were there a few uh, times in your childhood or your adolescence where there was a pivotal point that if somebody had just said or did something different, your life might have been much, much different? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't. I can't tell you exactly an experience that that would recall, but I could just say generally. Yeah, I need. I needed to, nurturing and some support and some direction. Uh, I just needed some uh, validation. Yeah, and rather than this is wrong, that's stupid. Why are you doing that? All all of those other kinds of conversations I would have. Now. I was responsible for a lot of that, uh, by the way, Howard. And I believe, my, my, particularly my father, was trying to help me. I mean, I don't think he was trying to hurt me. Yeah. But the way he expressed it, the way he understood the motivation behind another human being, he had no idea. He was just making it worse. That's all he was doing. And you said something earlier about feeling like, uh, you know, things weren't, Things weren't very good in your life, and but then you didn't feel maybe you deserved them anyway. I had a I had a um, a therapist one time many many years ago who, in describing the way my dad treated me and with the message that I got from my family of origin from where I grew up was, "You're a worthless piece of you know what." But then who are you to expect anything anyway? And it was like that double whammy that hit that that penetrated whatever little bits of self-esteem that I had at the time to just make me feel like, why am I in the world? Did you ever get those kind of feelings? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have, yeah. How did you deal with those when you were, I mean, obviously alcohol came into the picture. It did. And before that, there was some drug use, not mm-hmm. a lot, but some mm-hmm. drug use. Mm-hmm. So I was always looking, and, and as I say, I, I I acted out in school, which really proved my worthlessness, by the way. I was just demonstrating it to the world that whoever told me that, they're right. And as I say, I, I, I very, very disruptive childhood. I, it just, 
it was sad when I now going to talk about it. Yeah, that's the way that's the way I would describe it too. But you know, we don't want to shut the door on it. But I think there's a lot that we can learn, at least, especially when it came to raising my own kids. Yeah. I I was scared to death, John. When my wife first got pregnant, I was scared to death that I might become the father that my dad was. And that scared me greatly. And uh, I don't know, things worked out quite well with my now 30 plus year year old children. But back then I just, I was scared. I was scared. Did did you carry some of those sort of things with you into adulthood? Absolutely. Matter of fact, I I was afraid of just about everything. And, And it was with me for so long, I didn't even know I was afraid. It was just part of my my everyday experience. Yeah, I only started to notice the fear in my life when I started to come into the program, and it is piercing through the illusion that all oh, everything's okay. And I started looking at it, I think, no, oh my God, I, I, why didn't I compete in school? Yeah, because I was afraid. I was afraid that if I gave it, if I gave it everything, and I wouldn't be good enough, that would just ruin me. I I thought. I was a very good football player, mm-hmm. and uh, matter of fact, when we had the city leagues, uh, people would know me because of how well I played. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I went to high school, I didn't bother to try out for that team. Really? Yeah. It, that, that just that to me was the the fear of of dealing with what I thought I had to deal with. It's like you threw in the towel before the fight even started. Exactly, exactly. That's sad. It is. Mm. And I spent four years doing that. So you, you were four years in high school. That takes you up to age 18. And then yeah. what did you do? You said you started drinking at 18. So somewhere there's a confluence of things going on in your life that culminates in your drinking. Can you tell me a little about that? Yeah. So when I got thrown out of school, I started working in this factory with my dad. Yeah. So I got to meet older men mm-hmm. and uh, what did they do? They went out and drank and I and I started doing that as well. Sure. So that was the that that's how that whole got started. But the thing about this in which I, I'm fascinated by this even today, mm-hmm. being in that factory, I know I didn't belong there. Hmm. And I decided to go back to school after a year. Mm-hmm. And I did. I went to that priest again, that, that principal, and I said to him, I want to come back. He says, are you sure? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I really want to have a crack at this. It was like the intelligence in me, the gift of intelligence in me was saying to me, you know what? You're throwing something away here. Hmm. You're not stupid. And I went back. I went back to school for about a year, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just, I just didn't have the character to follow through on what I desired in my heart to do. So some little divine spark in you occurred and you went back. Yeah. What was it that kind of extinguished that and made you leave again? Because of the the way I was preparing for my classes and my studies, Mm. not doing my homework. It was already started to drink then. That became more important. Mm -hmm. And I would show up to class and, being ridiculed by teachers. You know, I can remember a teacher used to say to me, why don't you quit school and be a bus driver? That's all you're ever going to be. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> <It is. laughs> but I was hard to handle, Howard. <laughs> I bet you were. 
I'll bet you were. Yeah, the teachers who was, I was in their class got mm-hmm. frustrated with the way I was acting out, of course. I was disrupting everything. How they deal with it is through aggression, right? Yeah, yeah. Rather than sitting somebody down and trying to find out this. Well, today, you know what I think would happen today? I think the teacher would sit down and say, okay, what's going on with you? Yeah, they'd send you to a shrink or you'd go down to the, the, the school's uh, psychologist or clinical social worker and yeah, help yeah. you help you work it out. Those things right. were not available back then, were they? No, no they weren't. Oh, yeah. No, they weren't. Yeah, so here you are. You're 18 years old. Did, uh-huh. did you end up dropping out or did you get the high school degree after all? No, I didn't. Uh, I dropped out. And uh, again, this pursuit ended up me going to adult education and getting my grade 12. So I even I even stopped work again and went to an, an adult environment to get my grade 12, which I, I did. Yeah. So there was this 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 desire in me to to feed the thirst of, of learning to learn. Yeah. Even though I had no idea how to go about doing it, Howard. I was a poor reader. Uh, and why wouldn't I be? Because this is this is the, some of the principles I bring forward in my life. In the absence of structure or knowledge, you blame yourself. Yeah. So for me to be a poor reader, I just concluded that I was stupid. I wasn't. I didn't make the mark. Only to learn later that reading's a skill. <laughs> Well, a lot of people, a lot of people have difficulties with it, you know, dyslexia and, and other things that go on that, that create some big difficulties. If there aren't people around you encouraging you through that, John, I think you and I both know what happens. And it sounds like that thirst for what you wanted but weren't able to attain because of the reading, uh, that, that's really sad. Uh, and so you're 18 years old, uh, you you leave high school. Now, from what you told me earlier, it sounds to me like there were only really maybe four years between that time and when you first went to AA and tried it out. That's a really concentrated period of time. And then another three years until you were 25 and you went into the program. It's a concentrated period of time. What was going on with with regard to the the drinking after you got out of school and the people that you were hanging out with and and the things that you were doing? Well, I started drifting away from my boyhood friends. Hmm. The friends that I went to grade school with. Why is that? Well, they weren't drinking like me. I was drinking. So there was there was an attraction to um, a people who drank more like I drank. Uh, that I think really sped up this process of mm-hmm. of uncontrollable drinking. Mm-hmm. I I was absolutely unpredictable. Like I had no one knew what was I going to do next. I'd be lost for two or three days. My parents would be, you can imagine, uh, as a parent yourself, uh, what would that be like to have a child missing? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a horrible thing for them. And I, I, I was defiant. I was resentful and defiant, resisting any kind of direction at, at this time. Sounds like you were an angry young man in a lot of ways, huh? Yeah, I guess I was. I guess I was. Hmm. What's interesting about all of this, I could sit and complain about the way in which things were. And I often say to people, this is what it did to me. But what did it do for me? And what it had given me is a deep desire and thirst for lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. 
Howard, I can tell you that, uh, that I have always got my nose in a book or I'm learning a new skill set or uh, mm-hmm. learning a new piece of software or, or learning to write a little bit better and so on. Uh, so that's what it gave, that's what it did for me. I eventually found uh, out the myths that I was carrying around and got to dispel them. So you you were able to do that within a relatively short period of time where going into AA started to provide those gifts for you. Yes. Yeah. Now, I want to tell you the reason I went out. I was six months sober, and the thing was working for me. I wasn't missing booze at all. I was enjoying the guys that were at the meeting and so on, and I got connected with them. So all that was just just very good. What got you there in the first place, John? I, I want to make sure I have the whole story. You, you're in AA at this point, but I'm wondering what got you there. Why would you? In, why in the world would you go to AA? Well, it's a combination of two things. One, I uh, fell down in a, in a bar one night, which I've done many times before. I mean, it's not like it's an unusual thing for me. But that moment, again, this has got to be a piece of grace, Howard. At that moment, I was truly ashamed of myself. Why? Well, because of the way I was acting. I mean, you said you fell down lots of times before, but what was there about this particular fall that had you feeling that way? Well, the fall is a fall. It just, it just, I think it was just represented to me that uh, I'm no good drunk. Mm. And I think that came with a sense of honesty to me. It was, it was like, here I am really looking through the veil of a fog of all this stuff that mm. I blamed and defended and explained away. There I was, like a, like a hen or a rooster without any feathers, naked. And it, I, was, I was full of shame. And then I went home that night, and then uh, for some reason, the days of wine and roses came up, uh, and I called AA. After being sober six months, I knew the guys in the meeting were going to ask me to chair or read the 12 Steps of 12 Traditions. Mm-hmm. They're perceptive men. I was afraid of them. And I was so intimidated by my reading. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to stand up and do anything in front of the room because of my history with the school. I decided that the fear drove me to not to come to AA anymore. The fear of having to get up and speak or read that would expose your shortcomings to the group. Exactly. And this is six months in. So what was what was going on in the first six months? What was your first weeks and months of uh, AA like for you? Yeah. So uh, two fellows came up and 12-stepped me. Uh, they, they shared their experience with me. Now, this is the first period of sobriety we're talking about, the first six months before you went out? Exactly. Exactly. One of, one of those men is still my sponsor today. Wow. After 51 years, I have the sponsor. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> and him and, I, him and I are famous friends, actually, as it turned out. So they came up and they, they said, can you stay sober one day? And I said, of course I can stay sober. Any fool can stay sober. And I certainly qualified to be any fool. And they took me to a meeting. This, this is so beautiful, I think, today. Mm-hmm. There was a man that got up there who was, you know, when I was 22 years old, this guy was twice my age and was an older man. He was from the East Coast of Canada, and they have a certain humor about them mm-hmm. that's really quite funny. And he was sharing his story, Howard. And uh, his name was Ted uh, D. 
and Ted would be talking about the cops coming to the door, the guns are out, the fist fights are going on, the violence he had in his marriage, and I'm in shock. <laughs> I couldn't believe that somebody was talking like this. I had not been in trouble with the law. I've never gone to jail. Mm. I should have been gone to jail, by the way, for, yeah. but I didn't get caught. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at this, and I thought, this guy impacted me. This guy really impacted me by his story. I took away from that meeting hope. First time I felt that ever. I had hope that I could not drink a day at a time. This is the beauty about being in AA for 50 years. Uh-huh. Every time I saw that man and I was speaking at a meeting, I would point him out. Mm. I'd say, there's the man that saved my life. And he'd have a big smile. He just loved that. You know, he just loved that. But you know what's true, Howard? Yeah. Because it was authentic. It was real. It was vulnerable. It was raw. And it it was done with humor. And the audience, of course, were laughing along with him. It was it was like nothing I've ever experienced before. Those kind of meetings and shares that people have early on for me, the first six months or so, as people were talking, and there were there were people in the in my early meetings that had stories much like that. Man, guys talking about getting shot and stabbed and going down and having <laughs> fist fights on the waterfront and all that other kind kind of stuff, yeah. and. There was a part of me that was sitting there saying, I can't be an alcoholic because my life is not like that, for one thing. And then for another thing, I was thinking, geez, this, you know, do I want to hang with these kind of people? And right. some, somehow I came back, but I remember there were plenty of differences that I felt, but I had no other choices. So had I had other choices, I think I would have probably worn them out before I came back. Fortunately, I, I stuck around. But the other thing was, too, and maybe you've noticed this over the years, early on, I noticed that um, everybody who shared, it was uh, everybody who was trying to have the best, worst story. And <laughs> I wondered if you ever noticed that in meetings. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> I knew you'd I knew you had. It always amazes me when I go to a meeting like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. How did you get your first sponsor? You know what? I no, I think I asked him. That was one of the fellows that came and twelve stepped me, and I think he was driving me around. Mm-hmm. And uh, him and I, we telephoned each other, and quite naturally, by the way. It wasn't like, oh, my God, is it him again? It wasn't anything like that. Right. And he picked me up. We'd go to meetings. We would laugh and joke. Him and I had the same kind of humor, and uh, we just got along so well. And I thought, you know what? That one of the things they talked about in the early groups that I belonged to was you get a sponsor. So I asked uh, Gary to be my sponsor. That's great. And uh, he has had a very strong influence on me in my, in my whole life. Well, during those first six months, John, he was working with you. You embraced the program. Yeah. What What went on that made for that for that slip? It was the fear. It was the the fear chased me out of the room. That's when I started to realize how afraid I was. When When did that start, though? Because you came in and you felt pretty good about things, and then you went out because of the fear. Yeah. When did that fear set in? And do you have any idea what caused it? Well, I don't think. I think it was always there. What I know today about psychology and and mental health is that these things never go away. But what we can do is is have a direction in our life that these things go to the side. So I was enthusiastic. I was going to meetings. I enjoyed the company. I helped in the stories. Uh, The fear wasn't prevalent then in those moments. Hmm. 
that then this this idea I started thinking. <laughs> oh my God, what happens if, if they're going to ask me to speak? I can't speak. I couldn't do it. What happens if I go to read? They're going to know how stupid I am. I can't. I can't do that. And the thoughts started to come up again, and I responded to those thoughts and engaged in those thoughts. And that's what happened. I went out and got a bottle of booze and left the AA program for, I don't know, about a year, I guess. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Did you, like, drift away from meetings, or did you just decide one day, I'm not going back, and I'm going to go get drunk? Yeah, it was a slow period. I started missing business meetings as a way of starting because I didn't like them. You know, so I stopped going there. I knew that they were going to ask me to speak, so I'd show up at the last minute because they already would have asked somebody. And then I, I was so afraid of these men, by the way, Howard, that I knew that they would catch on to what I was doing. You know, it was, it was as if they were piercing my, my mind. They're going to ask me for the following week. So that what next happened next was I'd leave right on time after the speaker's time now. And it was moving slowly that way. And my wife at the time, uh, she went in for some day surgery, and I went out and bought a bottle. And that bottle was in my car for about, I don't know, two or three weeks planning to go back to have some social drinking. See, the arrogance about this. You thought you could go back and drink like a normal person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was Gary saying during this whole time? I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty tight relationship going on. Did he see it, and did he say anything to you about it, or did you say anything to him? No. No, Hmm. he didn't. So there must have been a, a reluctance to let him know that you were hurting and that you were in fear. Exactly. I mean, that would that would be too revealing for me. What did that teach you about being a sponsor yourself? Well, one of the things it taught me was always remember the experiences I'm having about being a human being and, and expose myself to the new people I, I sponsor. Sure. So rather than laughing and joking and patting each other on the back, which is nice to have, mm. uh, there was... There wasn't a lot of conversations without judgment with Gary and I. And That's Gary tough. and I still are, 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 I would not share things with Gary today that maybe I should be sharing with him. But uh, it's just the, the environment of, of our friendship is one of, uh, of not be too vulnerable because you're, the one will, somebody's going to pick up a stick and poke you in the eye <laughs> huh, huh. <laughs> through humor, you know. What would he have said if you had said, I've, I've got this bottle and I, I'm just, I can't be in AA anymore. I'm going to go out and drink. What do you think his response would have been to you? Yeah, he would have, he would have probably said, well, go do what you think you have to do. Yeah, I, I kind of uh, thought so. Yeah. yeah. 
So you were out there for, you slip with a bottle yeah. and you just decided not to come back. Were, were people calling you during that time from the program? Were people wondering where are you at? And what were you telling them? Not that I recall, Howard. Really? But not that I recall. Now, they might have been, but um, I don't remember anybody calling me, actually. Because you went back to being a social drinker for that for that year. <laughs> How did that right. work out for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, tell you what, it dispelled any kinds of myths that I had that I was able to control alcohol because... Whatever I didn't do the first time around, I certainly did more when I went back out again. And, and you know, it's one thing about being an alcoholic who is ignorant. Mm. It's another thing, uh, an alcoholic, when he's been trained uh, in the philosophy of AA to go back and drinking. In other words, what we say, of course, and I know you know it, mm -hmm. that, that AA ruins are drinking. And I and I. I certainly can identify with that. Like I, I was no longer ignorant. I, I knew what was happening, and I knew I couldn't control it, and I was powerless, and all my relationships were going down the tubes. How did you rationalize it away then? Okay, so you're drinking after you have this head full of AA and filling that belly full of beer, as they say, or whatever else it was you were drinking. How did you rationalize that away? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I had the capacity uh -huh. to allow myself uh, to uh, to forget about what's really the truth is. Hmm. So somehow or another, I was able to over override the idea that there that this this addiction I had was uncontrollable and powerless. And uh, that's the only way I can explain it to you. Because how else? any rational human being would do the things that I was doing, knowing full well what not to do. Yeah, that's that irrationality, that that uh, that insanity that's that's talked about so much in the book. So you're there you're there in that period of time where you think you can become a social drinker again. At what point during your slip or your relapse did you realize that things were not getting gonna get any better and were gonna get worse if you didn't stop again? Well, my wife and I were separated as a result of that. She gave you up? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I was getting more and more desperate. Uh, things at work weren't going very well. I'd go out for a liquid lunch and not come back. Mm -hmm. uh, these things fly in the face of my my values I had, by the way, Howard. Uh, and that only works for so long. I can only deny those things for so long. So it just it just came one day around Christmas time, as I say, my my cyber date is twenty third of December. That shoes I had enough. Like I can't go on like this. Hmm. And uh, I reached out to Gary. And he came down. He was very kind to me and uh, said, "Okay, let's start again." So when when he came down again, so that's after. So your total relapse lasted how long? I think about a year and a half, and I'm only guessing that because his drive. He's a year and a half sober longer than I am. So when I first met him, he was six months sober. So it was about a year, year, 14 months, somewhere. year and a half. You must have had a lot of fear about going back to him, huh? Yeah. But I, you know what? The word comes to mind is I was prepared to surrender. Uh, so it, it's, you know, you can, you know what it's like. It's like when you keep 
when you're in the boxing ring, you can get the head in the face. Yeah, sure. <laughs> At some point, you say, this is enough. This is enough. <laughs> this is enough. Yeah. And that's kind of where I went. That's a, it, it was that moment around Christmas time. And I'm often asked, John, why did you get sober at Christmas time? Why would you, how could you possibly do it? And it's simple. It's really quite simple. I was just sick of being sick. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted out. I wanted out. Yeah, that's how it was for me, too. In fact, my last drink was on New Year's Eve of, oh. uh, of 1988. <laughs> so from what I've seen over the years, both with sponsees and people in general, Coming back in can be a very, obviously a very humbling process, but also a pretty scary proposition. But I think if people have lost enough during the relapse, there is a tendency to be able to put that aside. What was it like for you walking back into the rooms? Yeah, I was, you know what, I was embarrassed. I, I admit that. Um, I should have known better, those kinds of thoughts, the self-judgments I had about myself. But the guys around me were very kind and very generous and very supportive. Welcome back. It's nice to see you. You know, it, it, they made me feel better about this transition. And uh, slowly, I'm saying slowly, probably a few months, because now I lost the confidence of, of, of stopping drinking, right? Mm -hmm. This is this is what happens. You go back out. Uh, you, all of a sudden, now you take on the this idea. Am I a rarity? Am I that? person they talk about the big book rarely have we seen a person fail am i that person and then well the rest of that is the, that who has thoroughly followed our steps yeah so um what which what do you think was missing that you finally came back to realize that you needed if you were going to stay sober well one was this vulnerability about being open what my personal experience actually was about uh, the situations that i was living in in other words the fear what got me out of there to begin with, uh, what brought me back in was this vulnerability that I knew I had to expose to other people mm -hmm. rather than hiding it and isolating myself as a result of it, but to expose it to other people so maybe they can learn something about my experience. But more importantly, it was my commitment moving forward Yeah, that I made up my mind that regardless of how uncomfortable I am in AA, Regardless of what's asked of me, mm -hmm. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to look that fear in the face and say, you know what? You're not determining my behavior. You're not doing it. I still feel fear. Uh, just I'll just give you a recent conversation I had with myself. About a year and a half ago, I decided to write a book. Mm -hmm. well, you know what came into my mind the very first thing? I can't do it. You know why I can't? Because it went right back to high school. Now I'm 75 yeah. years old. I went right back to the experience of high school in my English teacher, marking up this paper that I had with red, crossing things out, and putting punctuation in there, and uh, explaining to me what these dangling participles were. <laughs> it's, that's what came to me immediately. How long had you been sober by that point when, this, when you decided that you wanted to write a book and that, those feelings? This was just 15 months ago. Okay, so it's taking you 50 years. Were there other times along the way in, the, in those five decades that you had thoughts of doing things that were immediately squelched by that yeah. very old, ancient feeling? Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me about some of those? Yeah, they're limiting beliefs. The thing about limiting beliefs, they're usually on an unconscious level. In other words, if, if I'm not pressing against them, mm -hmm. they don't. I don't feel that they exist. 
So when I started my first business I started, I was feeling quite incompetent because here I am, a guy that's uh, uh, ended up going to college, by the way, part-time, got, mm -hmm. got some certifications, and I started to uh, say, uh, I started to work in a, in a, a boxcars, lifting 100-pound bags at a boxcars for mm -hmm. a living when I first came in there. Mm -hmm. And I started getting better jobs and went into sales, and I was very good at it. And then it ended up me being, starting my own business. So what happened when I started my own business is this feeling of incompetency just is arose in me. And I was astonished that I was having success the way I was having success. Hmm. And I actually uh, tore it down uh, unintentionally. But, uh, they're called self-sabotage is, is a phrase. Uh, because I didn't think I deserved it. Now, I wouldn't have known that unless that I, I uh, the fact that I was trying to do something beyond my comfort zone. Yeah. This is what happens with these limited beliefs. They don't, you don't feel that they're there until you get out of your comfort zone and the process that I understand, when you get out of your comfort zone, you get into a fear zone, you get into a learning zone, and then you get into a growth zone. I got to go through those zones in order to be competent in the skill set in which I'm trying to reach. I didn't know that then. Yeah, I get that. So what kind of counsel and support were you getting when you were sharing some of these things that needed input from other people, or were you not sharing them? I wasn't sharing that. Why Why not? What was there about sharing that that you didn't want to put it out there that, hey, I've got some fear about starting this or, hey, I'm I'm self-sabotaging that? What, what was going on that you felt like you couldn't share that? Yeah. Well, they're called secrets. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the first time I'm admitting this to anybody, by the mm -hmm. way. Uh, but I would stay away from the winners, the big winners of AA in my area. I would stay away from them. Hmm. Why? Uh, because I was, I was, they showed, they were a mirror to me how incompetent I was. And I didn't realize that was happening. It just automatically happened. Mm -hmm. So my, Gary, my friend, would say, John, you wear your cards very close to your chest. And I would say to him something to the effect, I never realized I did that. I just don't think I'm going to talk to everybody about everything. You see, I generalized and universalized these things. Mm -hmm. And you get these messages from the most peculiar places. I was, I went on a, I don't know if you ever know what Landmark is, but I went on to study some of the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And they categorized me as the worst possible coach either. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I guess I wouldn't listen. There's the validation that you needed, John, right there. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I laugh at that today, but they're touching on something that will, it has become very, very important to me. When you continue to work and try to establish the truths of one's life, things get exposed little by little. And yeah. It just doesn't happen like a bam. It happens little by little. So I, when I came in here, I was suffering from a, a lack of self-esteem, self-confidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started to work as a sober person, I was doing things that I never did while I was drinking. Yeah. And every, every time I stepped out of that, in other words, I was stretching myself to do something, mm -hmm. 
these limiting beliefs and fears came about and I started to recognize them. You see, Howard, what happens with somebody like me is that I didn't have language around these experiences mm -hmm. because I spent a lifetime blaming and defending and explaining, not reflecting, not looking yeah. for where, where the truth is in me. I didn't spend any time about that. I was always externalizing it in conditions on something other than myself. The reason I asked that question, by the way, is because people will be listening to this. And one of the th reasons I do this show to begin with is I, I didn't want to spend the bulk of time talking about what it was like and what happened. People need to know of what, what it's been like for you and how have you used the program since you've been sober. Well, you've been sober over five decades. And if this happened at 30 years, and somebody might say, well, that's what to expect at 30 years. Or if it happened at five years, well, now I know what to expect. The fact that you just said to me something that you said you hadn't thought about before about the secrets is big. It's big, John. Mm -hmm. I sense that from you. And however long you were sober, I, th I think really doesn't matter now because what you said could apply to anybody with any amount of time, couldn't it? Uh, you know, Howard, uh, one, of, one of the reasons I started what my community is called the Freedom Hour one of the reasons I started this community is to let people know they don't have to wait 50 years. Hmm. That hmm. there are methods and coping and resiliencies that's been proven to work, uh, not only with addicts, but with, the, with, uh, with, with our species. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the knowledge to really to experience and to understand what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And... Not that I was alone or different. Anybody around me didn't know either. <laughs> so what we were doing uh, is hanging on to each other. And this is good things, by the way. We're hanging on each other so none of us would drown. Yeah, I get that. Which, which is different than taking a direction of flourishing. Uh, what happened after 50 years sitting in uh, discussion meetings, listening to speakers, taking different posts on service and working with people. What I began to realize, well, I started at 25 years sober. I can remember that. I wasn't meditating and I wasn't praying as often as I thought and I wasn't meditating at all. Hmm. I, I'm a need-to-know guy. So if I'm going to meditate, I'm going to read as much literature or books <laughs> I could possibly read in order to meditate. I could tell you how to meditate because I have all the knowledge about meditation, but I couldn't tell you what that experience was. Yeah, and at the very heart of meditation is the not thinking part, right? <laughs> <laughs> so load your brain up with plenty to think about before you meditate. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this is what I'm combating. Even today, I, I realize it. I, and I'll just give you another example yeah. of this. In step two, we talk about come to believe. You know what I did? Mm-hmm. I, I understood the word. I know the language. I grew up a Catholic. I understand what belief is, but I interpret it as come to know. Come to know. <laughs> so, yeah, come to know. And no. I went on and, and I went on this binge of trying to know what God was like. And of course, it's completely contrary to the word belief. Mm -hmm. Belief is just accepting conditions and circumstances beyond our knowledge. And the search of knowledge actually interferes or could interfere with beliefs. So your head was leading you forward and not your heart. Exactly. Exactly. So I like, I like, I like to say this, Howard. Uh, when, we're, when we're children, when mm -hmm. we're toddlers, our brain follows our feet. And that's why we learn so fast. But when we're adults, 
our feet follows our brains. Uh, and it's a mistake. It's a mistake that every person I've ever met often makes. And certainly I have made it time and time again. What happens today is that I come to understand that, that a human being is more than their thinking. Uh-huh. And that they are an experiential being, a sensing being as well. And with those two combinations working in tandem, not one or the other, when they work in tandem, one life becomes so much better. What you were saying earlier, John, about 25 years, it sounded to me like that was a, a turning point in your program, I'll say, because you have been you were sober already for 25 years, but... Sounds like a, a significant milestone in your sobriety. What occurred as a result of that awakening? That, and that's why I'm labeling it that, because that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Well, I had an imposter syndrome going on, uh, Howard. I was at this moment in my sobriety. People were coming to me, asking me questions, and want to be a sponsor of them. And I, they come to respect and trust my views of things. Mm. And then I'm looking at this thing, and I'm, I'm speaking about the spiritual growth in, in our 12 steps, but I wasn't practicing it. What I loved is it, it was in conflict with my values. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started, my, I opened up a group for meditation, mm-hmm. knowing, and, and, I, and I said this often, by the way, I'm comfortable with exposing my fears and beliefs and so on. Knowing that if I were the founder of a meditation group, I would have to meditate. <laughs> and it worked, it worked well. It was famous because that's exactly what happened. People huh. looked at me and saying, well, you are the meditator here. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, I responded to that favorably, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's when this whole thing started opening up to me. The next thing I realized... Uh, that there were conversations in AA that, that weren't happening. Important conversations, Howard. Mm-hmm. Necessary conversations in order to be fully self-expressed. What I was beginning to hear, that we are a group of people that could be considered a bird with a bruised wing. That there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. Oh, here we are. And I think there's, for me, there's some self-hatred in that. That mm. I was limited. I'm an addict, you know, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. What do you expect of me? But we're so much greater than that. Mm. And the conversations that I was used to listening to for a lot of years was, what's wrong with me? I'm not good enough. We started earlier talking about overstudying. Mm-hmm. We are overstudying our defects of character with the intention of fixing them and become better human beings. So the intention is, not, intention is wonderful. But what we're doing is making ourselves smaller. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that we seek out spiritual growth and spiritual connectedness at the same time that we are sabotaging the opportunity to really get it, you know? We're, we're being self-defeatist around the idea, still thinking that maybe we can, we can run the show, even though everything around us is indicating the blessing of, of being spiritual Trying to think our way through spirituality is, is just doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't. And because we're all or nothing thinkers, we tend to think that way, and we're perfectionism. Mm-hmm. All, the, all of these stuff that causes us angst, it causes the restless irritability and discontent, whether we're drinking or we're sober. 
the sequence of that statement is so very important to me today. Mm -hmm. I was already restless, irritable, and discontent, and I sought alcohol for comfort and ease. Mm -hmm. So the sequence of it is I was pre-existing in that in that angst. What the result was, I was trying to seek some comfort and ease. Now you take alcohol out, guess what happens? Mm -hmm. I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. So what do we do about that? Well, we, of course, we're in a spiritual recovery program for most of us. I know some mm -hmm. of the secular, secular stuff's going on, and they're doing well, and they're sober. I got no complaint with that. But what happens, I think, is that there's two forces that need to come together. One is the spiritual world, uh, and the other is a skill-driven world. In other words, I have responsibility in my life to become a better human mm -hmm. being. If I'm going to rely on God to do that for me, uh, I'm going to be disappointed. It's like a mystical dance with me. It, 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 it's two partners mm -hmm. in a relationship. And I like to think of it this mm -hmm. way, Howard, that God is causing me to become a better human being. He isn't making me become a human being. He doesn't necessarily give me the skills to become an effective human being, but he's causing me, he's moving me, he's nudging me towards this idea. And I put it this way, just to make a point. You know, God caused me that night so very long ago to pick up the phone and call the out of the blue. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it the yeah. night before. I didn't, it, was, it was just like, oh, okay, let me do this. He was causing me. Now, he didn't teach me the big book. I had to learn the language of the big book. Those two forces together, working in tandem, are an extremely powerful proposition. Now, when you think about the word cause, you know, and I, and I, there's another mm -hmm. word that we throw around so often is willing. Am I willing? We're talking willing. about turning my will and my life over the care of God. When you ask, what do you mean by will? Like, what do you mean by that? What definition could you possibly have that would I could understand what you mean by will? And I'll tell you, uh, I couldn't answer it very easily. And I had I had to dig hmm. for a definition that I could live with. And one definition is who will is causing something. So when I turn my my will, in other words, I've stopped causing myself to become a better human being or trying or being more disciplined. What I'm doing is giving that to God, who is the first cause of everything. And I liken it to this way, yeah. that God is the wind in my back. He's the wind in my back, moving me forward. Now, every one of us have experienced walking into the wind and walking with the wind. And that pretty much describes mm -hmm. my life. If I'm walking against the wind, it's hard and difficult. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea behind spirituality that you're talking about there, that wind behind us versus the wind against us. In my experience, there are a lot of obstacles to spirituality within me already built in because, like you, I want to understand before I accept. I want to be certain of the outcome before I engage. But it's almost like becoming spiritual for me is turning it over to God, and then what does he do with it? He turns it back over to me with his blessing. And that blessing is what makes things happen in my life. The problem is that on a daily basis, I forget that I have that blessing. So in the vein of spiritual awakening, maybe I've got spiritual narcolepsy. Maybe I go, maybe I go to sleep on that, on that idea over and over. Have you experienced that kind of thing? 
Oh, absolutely. And I call it the zigzag of recovery. Yeah, so it's not a straight line. It gets you there eventually. Because what we do is because we're, we're living with this experience and we're paying attention to it, our awareness becomes more acute. And we, we detect these yeah. things faster and quicker. The name of the game is not get rid of something, which there's a lot of talk about that. I want to get rid of fear. Well, it's impossible to get rid of fear. If you have to be honest, fear exists in us. It's in our 600-million-year-old brain. It is in nature that we're, we're given fear so that the adrenaline will run to our arms and our legs so we could fight harder and run faster. So if somebody wants to take mm -hmm. on getting rid of fear, they're in a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. What's important here is that to recognize the fear that you're having, acknowledge it, be with it, and then just choose to put your attention to something more empowering. You're not trying to suppress it. You're not trying to avoid it, nor are you trying to force it. Those things only create more problems. So what I've learned is is to honor the experience that I'm having, even though this experience may be uncomfortable or painful, or may demonstrate to you saying, "Well, John isn't he isn't very sober at all." <laughs> no matter how many years, right? I, right. I want to I want to acknowledge it, be with it, and to share it with people to let them know that they have permission yeah. to participate in their experience without any shame or guilt. And that's really so incredibly uh, important. What I've realized today is that sometimes interviewing somebody with as many years as you've got means looking at individual events along the way. Some of it, though, is to hear the culmination of wisdom that comes out of 50 years of sobriety. And you have definitely spoken with that wisdom today and about that wisdom today and about that spiritual connection that makes that wisdom possible. And sounds to me like you've got and have been able to experience and create for yourself an inner peace, which is my way of segueing into what you said you started doing uh, 15 months ago. And tell me about that experience. Yeah. So I was witnessing some conversations that were being shared in AA missing conversations. And I said to myself, you know what? Someone needs to bring this to the to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I started a group called uh, Freedom Hour. It's a, it's my community. I'm a, I'm a coach and a course creator. And I delved into, I became certified as a mental health coach. This is all at the age of 75 or 74 years old. Uh and then I started developing these courses through positive psychology so that I could share with addicts who are interested that they don't have to wait a period of time. I mean, that we can have immediate results uh, by just knowing what to do. It's I think what trips people up is the how. They know what to do. They know what's right or wrong. We all know that. Yeah. But the how is a different question. What skills is that? So I started uh, writing a book. It turns out to be inner peace, by the way, oddly enough, the title of it. <laughs> so that was kind of prophetic on your part. Uh, and I started developing yeah. some master classes around self self acceptance, uh, maximizing person's strength. You see, that's a conversation we just don't have in AA. We're always chasing what's wrong with us. And yet the science says, uh, Howard, is that 
Uh, we will gain much more by labeling or identifying or spotting our strengths, developing our strengths, and expressing those strengths more often rather than preoccupied with what's wrong with us. So I started mm. to shift my attention to these ideas, and I wanted very much to share them with other people. So I, I, I do mindfulness training. Uh, why? Because everybody wants to be mindful, by the way, and everybody has a view of being mindful. Sure. Uh, I don't know what your your location, but here in Canada, we often read the yesterday, today, and tomorrow prose. Everybody loves it. Yeah. Everybody loves it. There's this deep yeah. sense in them, this is the way to live life. But after they read yeah. it, they go on doing whatever they're going to do. Not because they're lazy or stupid. It's because they don't know how. They don't have a practice in place. So this really touched my heart. Uh if someone would be learn to be mindful and be able to be led into this experience and to practice paying attention, deliberately paying attention, uh, without judgment, by the way, and allow the experience to unfold as it is unfolding so that we can gather our the evidence or whatever the experience is rather than judging it instantaneously. That's so important. I, I, I wanted to... Uh, kind of interject here that a certain number of people get sober in AA, and because of what AA has done for them in sobriety, they go towards the mental health field. They go, they get their MSWs, they get their L LCPCs, they get all these other um, uh, things, and they're still active in AA, but then there, for some of them, there comes this turning point where the knowledge and the what they're doing in in leading lectures and doing workshops and doing this and that actually steers them away from the program into more of a logical uh intellectual pursuit how do you reconcile that it's an important issue you bring up because for years i was known as the god guy <laughs> yeah, oh yeah here comes the God guy. He's always talking about prayer and meditation. <laughs> God's guy, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, here comes the God guy, which is wonderful. If I'm perceived that way, I think that's just beautiful. But I began to realize that it's like a superstition sometimes. It's a spiritual superstition. You know, back in the Middle Ages, for instance, you know, the belief that, that people who were accused of a crime would be judged by battle and that God would protect the innocent one. Now, you can imagine with swords flying, <laughs> armor on, and someone beating the other, up the other person, and the, the idea that, that uh, the winner would be innocent is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Superstition. And it's the same thing here. When we talk about mental health, we automatically go to a place of spiritual need, as if, as if, and we wouldn't do that if we broke a leg, by the way, physical. Mm -hmm. But somehow or another, we, we, because we don't know how the mind works, we don't know how emotions evolve, we don't know any of that stuff, and oftentimes we're confused with these things, by the way, uh, we tend to look at those things as a spiritual matter. And I, again, I go back to this idea that God is causing me to develop a skill set uh, and, and this idea of competency and how to have mental health. 
there's skills here that any mm. any one of us can yeah. increase our well-being, our self-acceptance, our ability to be in the present moment. There's skills. There, there, there are practice, there's practices here, yeah. which I don't see it as an affront to God. I don't see it as a competition to God. I, I see it as is this this again this mystical dance that God you know yeah. how how. How do I have such curiosity, thirst for information at the age of 76 that I'm writing books, I'm having a community, I'm working 10, 12, 14 hours a day, loving every moment of it, Mm -hmm. and going out and helping people uh, who are in recovery, whether they're they're fresh or whether they're mature, uh, to say, hey, let's just take this practice on together and see what comes of it. Yeah. Both worlds can exist together. And I don't want to give up my faith as a result of learning what I've learned, nor do I want to give up my skill set for my faith, thinking that it's no, it's an affront to God. See, you see, I have something and you have something. The whole every one of us have this sacred identity. You know, this is what we have. Mm-hmm. We were gifted with it. We we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We were gifted with it. And along our lives, we get distracted. In our case, we get distracted with addiction. And then all of a sudden, right. we're, the, the sacred identity is in the mud, uh, below the mud. We can't see it anymore. All we can see is something wrong with us. That, I believe, is an affront to God. What I t- attempt to do uh, is to clear that mud so that people begin to see yeah their purpose, their meaning, their dignity, and their worthiness as a human being, not as an addict, but as a human being. And to see that they've been standing on solid ground all along while they are in that mud, and the clearing away of the mud reveals to them the solid ground that's been there all along. They just needed to see it. It's pre-existing. That's a a really remarkable realization on your end and certainly what a demonstration of the 12th step you've made there to not only carry the message to other alcoholics but to practice these principles in all your affairs to put together something that and i I would guess that people it's not a prerequisite for people to be in aa uh that they can uh, they can benefit from your experience uh in, in AA, but as you were talking about the tools and the skill sets, that's essentially what we have in AA. And, and we, you know, we talk about that mm-hmm. spiritual toolkit. And to me, it sounds like you've just taken that into a broader, a broader field and something that can be of value to people, even if they don't have a problem with alcohol or drugs, maybe they just have a problem with that spiritual need or that spiritual uh desire and it sounds like an amazing thing that you're doing john and uh you know this whole interview you know has gone by very very quickly and i always judge that as being a result of you and i connecting on a level that is heart to heart and the god in me talks to the god in you and then we as a friend of mine says then we don't have to drink no damn whiskey you're, you're an amazing man. I, I think everything that you're doing after being sober as long as you have, you could easily sit back and rest on your laurels. But it sounds to me like you've taken the program. You've let it energize you to pursue new avenues that are of help to more and more people. And I, I honor that and I, I salute you on that. And 
And uh, as I tell all my guests on the show, I love you. And I, I'm so certainly so glad that we had the opportunity to do this today, John. Well, thank you for inviting me, Howard. I enjoyed the conversation with you. And uh, it's always nice to meet someone who's a member of AA who, you know, share the commonality of, of not only the addiction, but the recovery. And I congratulate you for doing what you're doing and sharing a very important message throughout the world. I, I think it's remarkable. Thanks, John. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, John C., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. There are more than 135 episodes in this podcast series. The easiest way to share AA Recovery Interviews with others, especially those who haven't much experience with podcasts, is to have them visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where they can listen to every episode. If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for maintaining anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.